So NASA has a computer that's turning 98 years old soon. Oh. Her name is Katherine Johnson. Wait, what? She's pretty awesome. Oh. Hi, and welcome to Science Brunch. I'm Katie McKissick, a.k.a. Beatrice the Biologist. And I'm Mae Prince. We have a very special guest with us today, my dog Willow. <laughs> so you might occasionally hear her panting. Yeah, that's not us. <laughs> not this time. I mean, we've had her here before. If I you have heard known... panting before, that was her. <laughs> I am known to have a very breathy, uh, breathy nature, but no, it's not me. It's it's my dog. So she doesn't understand what we're doing here, yes. so it's fine. Today we're talking about Katherine Johnson, but before we get to our good friend Kath, I don't know what her. I think she went by Cat. Oh, oh, I like I like that. I, yeah. I am a Catherine, a Catherine Katie. So, but I, I I like the 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 cat. I like I like that. It's a good nickname. Um, before we get to that, we want to first mention that this is the final episode of our first season. Yay. We're applauding ourselves. <laughs> no one else will. <laughs> but um, so we, we hope you've enjoyed the, the, the first season of Science Brunch. Uh, if you haven't listened to all the episodes, you know, definitely check them all out. Um, we'll talk more at the end of this episode about what's coming next, but this is so exciting and we're really happy that we're finishing out this this wonderful first season with this awesome lady, Katherine Johnson. And before we get to her even, we're going to talk about our sort of sciencey newsy hors d'oeuvre bit yeah, that we science, always do. The science starter. Yes. Which is that uh, May and I recently went to the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, which is Woo. nearby. <laughs> we are in Los Angeles area. And we did the coolest thing, was, which was we learned about these forid flies. Um, they're in the genus Megacelia. Mm -hmm. So it's this really diverse uh, genus of flies. And the researcher who learned, knows all about them at the museum led a kind of little drawing class well, one evening. You, you have to say how you invited me to this, which I think... Okay. <laughs> so, so here's the thing about flies. Um, a lot of species you can tell apart in a, a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. For bacteria, for instance, you'd use their DNA because they're not really, you know, or you or what they look what they look like, what shape they are. Obviously, bigger animals you can tell what species they are by their colorations. Tiger, hippopotamus. Yes, totally. There you go. Uh, with flies, especially these flies, which are very very small, and so you you really can only see any detail under a microscope. The way that you tell the species apart is by their genitalia. And and not even and not and actually more specifically, it's the male genitalia because apparently all the females just look the same. Yeah, we're all the same. What can you we're do? all we interchangeable. Don't, we don't get fancy feathers or fancy no. genitalia. Yes, but so so this researcher Emily Hartop at the museum, uh, first of all, she's found dozens of new species of these by just looking at fly rumpuses in all los the time. angeles one of the most populous counties in the entire country <laughs> right so it's, it was very really surprising to find i think it was 39 news or no no 31 31 new species it was like my god we yeah. don't even know what's going on and yeah one of the most populated cities in the world mm -hmm. we don't even know what species we have it's just crazy um but yeah so she looks at their at their tuchuses just all day <laughs> 
And she makes these really detailed drawings when she's publishing, for instance, a new species. You have to describe it, which means describing its butt. Mm-hmm. I'm not even kidding. You have to describe she, its butt in detail. She has a very good sense of humor about this. <laughs> totally. she, she assures us that her parents are very proud of her. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so she showed us, th- uh, and I've, I've uh, talked to her about her research before too, but she sh- walked us through some of the, what's some of her favorite uh, Ford fly genitals? <laughs> <laughs> what they look like and because they are they are very different shapes so there's um, a couple different layers as you get toward its anal tubes <laughs> yay and they all have different uh patterns of little little hairs called setae mm-hmm. so she has uh basically she just maps out their butts they're and that's, hairy hairy butts yes and that's how people who you know are also in this research area can figure out which species of fly they have found by comparing them to these drawings of their butts. <laughs> so she was actually in the process of describing another another new species, and so she showed us this up close picture of the fly butt. Mm-hmm. And so we all practiced sketching this fly rumpus. Yeah. So a couple weeks ago, Katie just you know I think you g chatted me or something. You're like do you want to go to the museum and draw fly genitalia? I was like, hell yeah, I don't even need to know more. Let me think Sign about me this. <laughs> it was a wonderful event. And it was, I loved it so much because it was, you know, it was science art. So it's, it's like here. And every, so everyone had their own kind of take on it. Some people were getting really, really detailed. Some people stayed more general. Some people were getting in there with lots of shading and, and, um, and showing all the textures and everything. It was, and I just used colored pencils because... Why not? I'm a crazy person. And, uh, but you know, it was really cool. And it's, it's weird. It's weird to think that there are so many species that are right under our noses that we don't know about. It it just, I love thinking about how much we don't know. Also, it's weird that there were so many people who were willing to pay to come to an event to draw (laughs) fly genitalia. Right. Because it was a fundraiser. They're raising, they're raising money for their new urban nature research center which is dedicated to stuff just like this to Mm -hmm. figuring out what's going on in these urban center i mean specifically the los angeles urban center what species are there what introduced introduced species are there and what native species are there how they're interacting with each other how we're interacting with them it's it's a really big complicated you know question that splits into a million other questions and so they're starting this whole new thing where that is going to be a big focus of the museum and it's really cool yeah and i think it's interesting to note that you know scientists like jane goodall who are famous for going out into the bush all alone and you know observing these animals we kind of lose sight of the fact that we are surrounded by wildlife all the time. Yeah, and you don't it, have to go that far. And, and these <laughs> urban projects things. are really cool because they actually depend on, they're called citizen scientists, to contribute data to these projects. And then the scientists have this trove that they can go to and kind of sort through. And, that, and that's what they did for this project. They had you know, traps set up in people's just backyards around mm-hmm. LA. And then <laughs> they had these bags of dead bugs delivered to the museum. And, you know, this, this poor woman who's right, very excited sort about her work sorted yeah. through them and drew all their genitals, you know, <laughs> it's just, uh, science is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It brings the community together and, uh, yeah. But yeah. And those traps they use, they're called malaise traps, which, <laughs> I'm not, I, I feel like I've heard why it's called that, but it is, it's very descriptive of how the bugs experience it. It is right. very uh. not fun. Um, but yeah, there are these weird tent things. It's kind of the size of, hmm, maybe like a kitchen dinner table. And then it's, but it's a, it's taller and so it's this tent and it's not, it doesn't attract them. There's no like bait or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It just, it, they position them. So it's at 
an altitude, you know, just like five feet off the ground or whatever, so that bugs will often be flying flying by and they just kind of wind up going into this tent and then they go up it and they're like oh there's nowhere to go. and then they fall into this just jar i mean it's, it's yeah. a bottle and there's just nowhere no way to get out so it just captures anything that comes by it's totally passive and yeah they just go out once a week or so and just collect a big old bottle of bugs Mm. yay <laughs> but they're really excited about it so you know why not it was cool if, if you're excited about a big bottle of bugs this is the career for you fly butts yeah fly butts i just future. love fly butts now <laughs> i learned so much about fly butts so tell me about my girl cat so katherine johnson does she sound familiar to you at all not particularly, I have to admit. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Oh. <laughs> so if, if you heard the lead and you're like, am I missing something? You're not really missing anything. So Katherine Johnson is going to be 98 this year. She's still alive. Mm. Um, but she hasn't been on the scene all that long in okay. the sense that we've anyone has really known about what she does. Uh, the people who work with her, of course, know who she is and what she does. Um, and what she's accomplished. But the the outside world really hasn't learned about any of this until quite recently, I would say within uh, the past five, 10 years. So how did she come up on our list again? We were talking about... Well, I was kind of just looking for, you know, different types of scientists from different backgrounds. And I came across her name kind of mentioned in a small article. And she sounded really interesting. So I was trying to find more information about her. Um, and then the next week, there were all these articles about her because NASA named a building after her. Oh, that's right. In okay. May. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in May, yeah. May, it's all coming together. <laughs> it's all coming together. It's a conspiracy. Um, and it turns out that the previous November, November 2015, she was awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Obama, which is the highest civilian honor that someone can be given. I do remember this. Yeah. Okay. Now it's all coming together. All right. Okay. So here we go. First of all, who is she? <laughs> she <laughs> Step was, one. She was a research mathematician and physicist who worked at the agency that has since become NASA. And she worked on calculating all the trajectories and orbits for different historic missions that NASA conducted. Um, so that is the very short version. The longer version is that she was born Catherine Coleman on August 26, 1918. And just a little historical context there. She was born two years before women earned the right to vote and 47 years before the Voting Rights Act gave blacks in the South in practice the right to vote. She was a black woman and she grew up in West Virginia and eventually worked in Virginia, which at the time was segregated. It was not a friendly place for anyone other than straight up white people. <sighs> Sounds great. Straight white people, I should say. <laughs> and, um, straight white men. Straight white yes, men let's be very specific. ruled the roost at this time, as they did for, you know, a lot of history in this country. 1918, that was 15 years after the Wright brothers' first human flight, and that was 39 years before Sputnik. That was the first human-built satellite in, in space. So this is all kind of the amazing trajectory of human history. Like, we... We're barely getting off the ground, and then this woman, in the course of her lifetime was, you know, calculating orbits for human space missions, which is kind of crazy. So she was the youngest of four children. Her father was a lumberman, a farmer, a handyman. He did all sorts of work. Her mother was a teacher. And then, you know, she became a wife and mother. And she was the, Catherine was the great granddaughter of a slave. 
you know, her great-grandmother was a slave and her great-grandfather was her great-grandmother's master. So <sighs> it wasn't that far removed. Right. They're in West Virginia. You know, again, it's like a segregated community. She says in interviews that she didn't really experience racism in any significant way until she moved out of West Virginia into Virginia. Oh. Yeah, and started kind of entering the professional world. I mean, I'm sure her threshold of <laughs> pain and racism is right. much higher. But, right. um, but, I mean, undoubtedly, it was still like extremely difficult. So the cute thing is, is that she and she said she and her siblings believed that her father and mother were the most handsome and beautiful woman and man in the world. She thought the world of her father. He thought the world of his children. He really wanted them to get educated and grow up with a sense that they could do anything and that they weren't um, better than anyone else and they weren't lesser than anyone else. So kind of just starting them off on an even keel. Sounds like a solid guy. Solid guy. At the time, though, in their town, um, education for black children only went up to the eighth grade, and that wasn't enough for him. Good Lord. And so he made a lot of effort to drive them all to, you know, a high school that was, I think, more than 100 miles away. Mm. The interesting about, thing about Catherine is that from a very young age, she was following her brothers to school. It was a two-room schoolhouse. It was very small. And the teacher was really impressed with her because I'm like, man, she can read at a really young age. What is this kid? And so she ended up entering school, I think, at the second grade level when she was like six. Oh, wow. (laughs) And then the interesting thing is, is because like they ended up splitting the school and kind of, you know, pulling some teachers and the best students, you know, to kind of start a new school. Uh, As a result, she started high school at the age of 10. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So she's just flying through. Go, girl. Yeah. Smarty, smarty pants. So her father, recognizing that she was super smart, uh, chose to drive his family and her, you know, including her, 120 miles to Institute West Virginia, where she could continue her education through high school. And uh, her high school was part of the West Virginia Collegiate Institute, which was formerly the West Virginia Colored Institute. It was later renamed West Virginia State College and then later renamed West Virginia State University. And she stayed there. She graduated high school at 14. And then she decided to go to college (laughs) at 15. And um, while she was there, she'd always been super into geometry and math and all that. But she was also really in love with English and French and all that stuff. And she couldn't decide what her major should be. And while she was there, there was this young uh, black professor who was a mathematician. He was actually, I think, the third uh, African-American to earn a Ph.D. in mathematics. <laughs> um, he was there and he uh, he encouraged her to become a research mathematician, except she didn't know what that was. <laughs> so I'm not even sure I know what yeah, that is. And, and so he was like, don't worry about it. You're just going to take all of the math courses here, <laughs> and I'm going to even create new math courses for you. Just More for advanced you. courses. She said in some classes all it was just her. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so he just basically put her through all of her bases because he was like, here's a, a mathematical talent that should not be wasted. I'm just going to throw math at you. Yeah. And more so and more math. When she asked him, what is a research mathematician? What do they do? How would what What kind of job would I get with that kind of skill? And he's like, that's your problem. I'm just going to get you ready. <laughs> uh. <laughs> So he made sure to make sure we'll that she had that bridge when we all come of to that. It. Yeah. And using she, math. she graduated with a bachelor of science degrees in math and French. Oh, cool. So still held on to the French. Oui. Très bien. So when she graduated, 
this was in the mid thirties and you know, it was the depression. And so it was hard to find a job. So she didn't really get a job until August. And when she did get a job, it was not as a research mathematician. It was as an elementary school teacher. One of her professors had recommended her for a job. And so she got this random telegram out of the blue saying, if you can play the piano, the job is yours. And she's like, (laughs) what job? Because you have to sing to the children? I don't don't understand. I think they were trying to like multitask the teachers, you know. Um, So she ended up going at that point to Marion, Virginia. So finally leaving West Virginia and going to Virginia, just one state over. And Marion, Virginia was kind of at the, uh, it's equidistant from like Kentucky, North Carolina, West Virginia, and Tennessee. So it's kind of in that Southwest Virginia region. Again, not a hospitable place to be a black person at that time in the mid thirties. It was, everything was still segregated and everything. She said she did experience racism, she says, for the first time in Virginia, and it was on her trip to Virginia, and they were told, like, you have to sit in the back of the bus, they separated all the passengers, and she was always always kind of like, you know, I don't know, needling people back, so she's like, well, I didn't listen to them to tell me to move until they asked politely. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't understand that. You're going to have to say it a little more more nicely. I mean, it's funny because she says that that's the first time that she really experienced racism. But she also said that when she was growing up, people would call her father by his first name instead of like Mr. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Coleman. Um, they would say uncle Josh or call him something else, which was kind of showed a lack of respect. And so she in turn would call the grownups around her, like father, so-and-so or uncle, so-and-so, and and they would get really mad. And she was just like, (laughs) 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 so, so it sounds like she found ways to kind of, you know, have a little fun with it. So 1939, she's 21. She gets married. She starts a family. She has three daughters. And uh, at the time, you know, for women, a lot of places wouldn't allow you to keep your job if you were married. <gasps> My because you should be home or right. whatever. I don't or, know. I don't or also, know it's, just, it's a matter of time before you're pregnant. And, right. And Lord knows we can't have you here if you're pregnant. That's just a liability. Oh. And also, you know, the moral issues of seeing a pregnant woman's <sighs> ooh, body. Oh, yeah. Terrible. Just, oh. Terrible. So she kind of like kept that quiet she didn't want people to know because the school year wasn't even done yet when she got married so she was like "Eh, did you know that they in like when they first started making actually maternity clothes you know in like the 50s you know at i don't know macy's or whatever one of the big department stores they couldn't actually have ads that showed a pregnant woman wearing them because it was totally illegal or whatever, or whatever to actually show pregnant so they had these maternity clothes on on non-pregnant models non-pregnant i know it's like oh i can really visualize how that big potato sack would fit on a pregnant body i would love that to be the case like you just have a Yay. sack of potatoes it's all lumpy yeah. i mean you'd think that they would just wear a fake belly if, if you're not allowed to have because I, I think it's the whole suggestion of pregnancy oh God, and what it, just, it entailed yeah you know? I, apparently there weren't actually ads featuring pregnant woman actually wearing the pregnancy clothes until the 80s oh my god (laughs) so anyway (laughs) anyway so just a year later she was invited back to her alma mater because they were quietly trying to desegregate and they were trying to avoid a lawsuit i think and so their way of doing that was to invite a couple of their uh really talented minority graduates 
back for like a graduate program and she was one of them so then she became one of three black students at the entire university and the only black woman uh-huh. <laughs> but she was thrilled at the opportunity because it was you know a white university and it was advanced mathematics courses which we know she's all about so she was happy to go back um, not everyone was happy with having, you know, the university desegregated, obviously. And her daughter actually tells a story where, um, there was one professor who came up to her and asked like, what are you doing studying graduate level mathematics? What are you going to do until you get, you know, a job doing that? She's like, well, I'll just teach like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so not everyone was happy about it, but it sounds like she just kind of took it in stride. Um, she was actually, though, unable to earn her advanced degree because while she was there, her husband became ill. It turns out that he had brain cancer. Oh, man. And he eventually died from it um, in the mid-50s, I believe. Yeah. So she instead went back to teaching to support her family. And it was years later. So this is like the early 50s. So she's always, you know, the reason why she studied what she did in college was to become a research mathematician, whatever that was. <laughs> we'll figure that part out later. <laughs> exactly. And she hadn't yet gotten a job as that. And, you know, and so she, but it was still kind of her dream. And so in the early 50s, they were at a family funeral. And, you know, one of her relatives invited her to come stay with them for a couple of weeks. And so she went, and while she was there, they were like, oh, you know, this this place, this National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, which was one of the the elements that became NASA in later years, um, they're hiring mathematicians and they, you know, they had been hiring black mathematicians and now they just opened it up for women. You should apply. And so she's like, because yeah, right. you're because you're both of those things, you're both of those things. <laughs> And, and so she she ended up meeting with the supervisor, but just a little background. So the reason why the NACA needed mathematicians in the first place was because this was the era before computers. So they needed humans to actually perform the calculations. And so then uh, they did that, you know, starting in the 30s. So during World War II, they started hiring women computers, they were called. And they dramatically increased the number that they, they were hiring. And this was because of several reasons. I mean, there was the manpower issue. All the men were going off to war. And um, they were actually, before that, the engineers were in charge of doing their own calculations. And what they found was that people who were dedicated to the math did, them, did the calculations much more quickly and better. So they were like, that freed up the engineers to do more of the thinking right. side Right, so it's like, things. let's separate these jobs. And plus, exactly. I just love the idea that... A computer now is a piece of is a machine. It's yep. a piece of hardware you have that does these things. But it used to be a job description like a baker. Yeah. Like a baker bakes things. A computer computes, computes things. Yeah. It's just so weird to think about a computer being a person. It's so hard to use that and word. It was kind of done the same way that you do with computers now. You just feed them a bunch of data, mm -hmm. and then they crunch sp the numbers, spit please. out answers. Yeah. Exactly. So she said that you know they, using they would those get enormous these, calculators, they would get these massive spreadsheets of numbers, mm -hmm. and then you know these like tiny well, they're actually numbers. like plotting things. I mean, they would yeah. do the math for every, you know. Like, like, remember when you had a graphing calculator and you'd graph yeah. a parabola or whatever? Because, yeah, because it was graphing, like, you know, 
you know, y equals x squared. It would say, okay, one is one, two is four. They they would go through and actually plot every single number by plugging in another x. Like these people were doing that. They were yeah. like, oh, now I'll plug in the next number and then see where the next graph is. Obviously not for something as easy as y equals x squared, but for these really complicated <laughs> calculations that were getting things, yeah, like yeah. later on into orbit and figuring out like, where will Saturn be if it takes this long for this thing to get to Saturn? Saturn it's like, ah. yeah. So the interesting thing is, is that because these women were so good at being computers, after the war, the organization held on to them because they were like, well, it's too valuable. Like, let's just keep them on. And so it became kind of a more, uh, there was more opportunity in this workplace because even when women got married or had children, they held on to them as employees because they realized how valuable they were. Of course, this did not lead to a direct increase in the amount that they were paid. They were still paid yeah. way below. They right. were considered below engineers. Men who were hired to do kind of the same function were called junior engineers, and that was considered a career, whereas this was considered just work. Um, yeah, they, I think they treated it kind of like secretarial work. It was kind exactly. of considered in the same vein as that. I know that there were there were a lot of women they hired at the turn of the century to work on a lot of star maps. And that, that at the time they were like, well, we're going to hire women because women are more detail oriented. Like these like really backhanded compliments. Of that like, same argument is used today. I know. Like, well, you're really or- good at organizing. Well, you're more nurturing. Parties. So you should do this <laughs> thing. It's like, hey. Um, but, but yeah, I was probably also because it was like, or also because we pay them half as much as we pay a man. Yeah. So we can hire twice as many of them. And that's mm-hmm. the other thing that I didn't find written anywhere, because, of course, all of the research that I did was kind of a lot of it was put out by NASA or right. whatever. So it's but a little I bit suspect, it's been washed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had to as the space program ramped up, as you know, the military effort ramped up, they really needed tons and tons more computers. And so. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they had budget restrictions. If you can hire someone at half the rate or a quarter of the rate, you're going to do that, mm-hmm. especially if they are just as good or better mm-hmm. than the people you would have to pay twice as much. Yeah, I just, uh, I need to read this book, but I went to a book talk about Rise of the Rocket Girls mm. that's talking about this exact same thing at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And it started before JPL was actually part of NASA. So they started having, like at the very beginning of it, um, the first, yeah, the first women that started on the team were computers and, and how all that worked. And yeah, it was very similar. It was like, oh, they're cheaper. But eventually there was a, a woman who was um, appointed to be the manager and she she hired exclusively women. Like it would be a lawsuit these days, of course, because mm-hmm. there were still some men on those teams. I mean, at first it was like half and half and then eventually it was all women. And so she would only hire women because she wanted it to be like a family and she just wanted everybody hmm. to get along really well so whatever that was just her her philosophy but yeah she made a really uh, made a point to hire them back after they you know, if someone got pregnant they would get fired back then yeah because it was like you can't be here if you're pregnant mm-hmm. it's you're a liability like a, you know so they as soon as you so as soon as your employer found out you're pregnant you got fired and then awesome. she would call them you know a year later and say hey you want to come back so it just kept a lot of these women coming back you know after they had kids and stuff that's but, awesome yeah it's just it's it's mind blowing just yeah. how different it was, you know. I mean, just... it's what, slightly better <laughs> today. <laughs> well, more on that later. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, so that's how they started hiring women. And then during World War II, the NACAA started to include African American women in that hiring process. And I'm not exactly sure why they decided to do that. I think it was probably also a manpower issue. Like, 
they were trying to ramp up effort. There weren't men available. And also, I'm imagining that there weren't a whole lot of women out there of any race with mathematics degrees, with the skills necessary to do these calculations. Yeah. And so they ended up going and recruiting um, women who had, you know, black women who attended university, like all of them had college degrees in mathematics. And um, they ended up with kind of this little cohort, I think of about 13 or 14 black women. And they were in a segregated unit. I will. Um, But they were there working in in that capacity. And that was the group that Catherine Johnson uh, was able to join at that time. Catherine was 33. And that group was the majority of them were like in their very early 20s. I mean, it sounds like they were just pulling them right out of college and uh, putting them on this. Obviously, they were looking for younger women because of the whole like married woman married stigma whatever yeah at this point i mean Catherine although even had then you would children right but even back then being being 22 or whatever meant you were gonna get married any day right i mean so, she got she got married at 21 and right. i think became nearly immediately pregnant so it was yeah i mean it was it birth control sounds, options were limited back then it, to it just was, wishing and, and there hoping. was also like <laughs> a lot of pressure i mean that was yeah. supposed to be your job no, you weren't sure. supposed to want to be whatever a research mathematician was. Um, but the cool thing was after just a few weeks of working there, there was this engineering unit that came in and what they would do is, you know, the women were given all these calculations to do during the day as work, but then special projects could come in and pull computers out um, to work specifically with them on something. Again, on like computers, a are people, computers, computers are people, everyone. Computers are people. Yes. They, they weren't like checking out like a piece of equipment. <laughs> Although I guess it kind of like operated they would that go, way. Go get, go get the laptop cart. Exactly. <laughs> like roll them in. Um, so they grabbed Catherine and one other woman and pulled them into um, the flight engineering department to do calculations. And they were basically there to calculate the geometry problem of missions, like figuring out speed, start location, position of the moon, so that they could, you know, launch moving things. Yeah, Yeah. they could launch things and have them hopefully come back because (laughs) the eventual goal was to have someone in the spacecraft and you don't want to just rocket. You kind of want to know where it's going to go. You want to know where that's going to go and you kind of want them to bring back, you know, like at that point, PR was a thing. (laughs) You'd like to know where it went and when (laughs) um yeah so she said that it was a big deal because if you know for the manned space flights eventually if you if he missed you know they would do the calculations they would tell him exactly how he was supposed to steer the spacecraft and if he missed it by more than their margin of error he was never getting back Mm -hmm. so not only did their calculations have to be correct but then they had to depend on the actual astronaut to you know steer the spacecraft along the calculations that they had given him so while she was there, you know, she, she said the women mostly kept their heads down and did their work. I think that was part, probably a lot due to the fact that their position in society was very tenuous anyway. But Catherine being herself was just like, well, I don't want to just do the calculations. I want to know why we're doing them. Like, what is this for? And they were having, you know, these engineering meetings. And she was like, can I go? And they're like, well, no women why attend do you, these. Why do you want to go? And she's like, well, is there a law against it? And they were like, no. Just like, well, all right, I'm going. Well, you can't <laughs> stop me. So they're like, I, I dig this. Okay. And they kind of got used to her being there. And because they liked her and the other woman computers so much in that unit, they ended up keeping them. 
So it was supposed to be a temporary assignment. She was supposed to just be doing general calculations for whoever, you know, just a right, new no questions asked. Every day. Like here, here's my equation. Exactly. Just Give crunch the, the numbers. Yeah. But instead, she got you know kept on this flight assignment, which led her to all these different missions that she worked on. So this is where we get into the really cool stuff. September 1960. This is after eight years of working at NASA. I mean, at this point, it's NASA. She's 42. She, along with another colleague, published the theoretical foundation for her calculations that were used to calculate human spaceflight. They wrote the paper on how to determine the azimuth angle for a moving spacecraft. So this is like basically how to figure out how to triangulate coordinates and launch a spacecraft out and then get it back and where it's going to land on Earth and, you know, the position of the moon and everything. So they wrote that paper. That was the first paper ever published by her division at NASA with a woman's name on it. Nice. Yeah. So not bad. And um, Go cat. And those, She's on a roll so far. Those calculations and that algorithm basically became what was used in computers, future actual electronic computers that we're right. familiar with to calculate those kinds of orbits. So she was doing them by hand. That same method that she established there in this 34-page paper eventually became exactly what they used in their electronic computers. So in 1961, the United States ended up sending Alan Shepard into space. He was the first American into space. She was the one who did the calculations of that flight. Nice. I say flight, but it wasn't that fancy. She was actually, that's kind of easy because it was just a parabola. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they kind of put him in a rocket. They (laughs) shot him up. Okay. So uh, just a little context, just shortly before the Soviet Union, our arch nemesis (laughs) had launched the first man into space and then we're like, well, we want to do that. Is that Yuri? Yes. Okay. Yuri Gig. I don't remember. It's blagger, 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 blagger. Astronaut Yuri. Yeah. Yuri. He has a knight. Yes. <laughs> or Yuri, whatever. <laughs> and um, then the United States was like, well, we got to do that. And so they grabbed Alan Shepard. They put him in a rocket and they launched him up. And so what they did was they just wanted to technically get to space. So they launched him up into, you know, the atmosphere or whatever. They crossed that what is it called the carmen line or whatever oh, yeah, it is yeah 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 they're like just just barely just squeak yeah. by just like and so he was he books. was like weightless for a couple seconds and then like plummeted <laughs> back to earth and so he ended up only you know the parabola the his start point and end point were about 300 miles apart so it was just a super quick thing the whole thing lasted about 15 minutes so not complicated things got more complicated after that so after that 1962, JFK says, we're going to put a man on the moon. We're going to be the first ones to put a man on the moon. I mean, at this point, right after Sputnik, which was 57, we were in a space race with the Soviet Union, yeah. right? And they and beat so us two times. They beat us two we times. We have to beat them at first something. First thing in space, yeah. first man in space. And we're like all mad about it. Yeah. They so, probably beat us with like the chimpanzees too. They're just like, we're just launching everything in space. They're just Dogs. killing it. They're killing space. And we're just We're going to be the back. first ones to put a cat in space. How about that? <laughs> we're just going to send some random thing. Guinea pigs. We'll, we'll be number one. Um, Chinchillas. So, yeah. so in 62, he says, yeah. We're, we're gonna we're gonna land on the moon that's that's the mission and so immediately nasa's you know full-on we are going to put a man trying on to moon. figure this out mm-hmm. so in 1962 as a first kind of step to getting to the moon they had to be able to make an orbit around the earth so that was going to be that was john glenn's friendship seven mission it, it was a mercury atlas six spacecraft and 
at that time they were using electronic computers to do the calculating orbits and all the you know speed and everything and but they didn't really trust computers yet electronic computers because oh. it was a new thing it was a new technology what is this box with all these keys yeah i mean you put stuff <laughs> in you got answers out but you but didn't there's really no one know to talk how to. it did it <laughs> and so john glenn you know reportedly said all right well have Catherine run the numbers Ooh. and if she says the computer's right then i'll believe it oh my god i love that and so That's she awesome. did she calculated i think it took her about a day and a half while I was eating the microphone. I'm sorry. It took her about a day and a half, and she came up with the same answer. So then John's like, all right, I'll, I'll risk I'll my trust, life I'll trust for this, America. this little plastic box yeah. then. Okay. So I was like, she says the computer's right. I'll do it. And so he successfully orbited the Earth three times. Awesome. We're, still, we're on our way to the moon. In 1969, she did the same thing for the Apollo 11 trip to the moon the first humans on the moon she verified all of the calculations that the electronic computer spit out i mean it's very interesting that at this point they're still like well yeah let's check what the computer's doing because we don't do that anymore yeah we just trust i actually kind of dig that they were like are you sure because yeah what if the person who programmed whatever yeah. is, it's running did make a mistake and they I, i'm glad that they didn't have some kind of blind trust like this is superior to people because it is made of metal yeah <laughs> like, and and she said that you know she was watching everyone was watching it on television like waiting to see if we made it to the moon and she said she was at some sorority function like like from her alma mater and she's there they're all watching the television and she said everyone was concerned about if we were going to get on the moon and she was concerned about if they were going to get off the moon because there were so many factors involved like i still can't believe that we were able to come back from that no and they had to like detach from their spacecraft land on the moon then they had to wait 22 hours go back up and intercept the orbiting spacecraft so that they could sling back to earth yeah and if they were off by any you know truly getting back sounds way scarier yeah and so she was like there's no guarantee i mean getting them there was not the hard part the hard part was getting them back for sure and well that's why they have that um that speech you can it's historical record now the speech that he was going to read if they didn't make it back if they either got stuck in orbit around the moon or if they just completely crash landed or if yeah if they just couldn't take off and they were just going to be like all right, we've got, you know, a couple more days worth of food. Bye, y'all. Yeah, I or mean, if they steered incorrectly and really? just went off. Oh, yeah, you know, or if they space. crashed. Exactly, if they crashed or what. I mean, all of all of the things that could have gone wrong. Just, that is that is dark. Like, it okay, dark. everyone, this was a really great thing we did. And they all and they all knew that there was this chance, the, the astronauts themselves. But yeah. yeah, they're going to be, their dead bodies will be orbiting the moon for the rest of eternity. Uh, yeah i mean it, it does put it in context like they're they're always framed as american heroes which you know they, they are but like the risks back then were so steep like you, you have a human being calculating mm-hmm. like oh yeah here's the orbit and then intercepts Car- carry the three so, yep carry the three and then <laughs> the moon oh wait the moon comes over here i mean i cannot imagine and, and they were using tools where you know they had the I think they were called celestial trainers they were these little like well they, they have like slide rules yes yeah, i mean they're, well, they're slide rules for space they're not basically. using i mean they they didn't even have good yeah. calculator hand calculators yet it blows they're doing my everything mind. by hand they're doing everything with a slide rule i don't even know how to use a slide rule i've seen one i don't even know how to use it but it's like 
yeah, using logarithmic charts because rather than actually, you know, putting into a calculator, you would just find it on the, it's like, it's like reading, uh, read, oh my God. I mean, remember Charles Babbage? Yeah. This was his whole deal. Yeah. He was like, navigation needs to be precise. Like you can't make a mistake in the calculation or a boat is going to crash into the rocks. Mm -hmm. That was his whole reason for trying to build a computer, like a, a not a human computer, an electronic computer. Yeah. And they still had, at that point, they had just invented the computer. They'd built them, you know, starting in World War II, but they still weren't sure about it and they weren't sure what they were doing. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's man, I don't know. I still, it still blows my mind that we were able to do that back then. I, fe I feel like I would be really nervous. For, I mean, I'd, I would be. I'd be really nervous if astronauts were heading to the moon tomorrow and needed to come back. I'd be like, right. oh my God, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. <sighs> Uh, so yeah, so she she worked on she verified a lot of the calculations for different space missions and did a lot of other stuff and she even um, she helped on Apollo thirteen the ill fated Apollo thirteen if you've seen the movie with Tom Hanks <laughs> um, and once that mission was aborted she worked on the backup procedures and charts to help safely get the crew back to Earth and that was a huge feat in of itself like things went terribly wrong and they were able to get them back so. Yeah, she was part of that whole exciting space age in American history, and she actually had a hugely influential <laughs> role. So yeah. she was the one actually, you know, making all the calculations, make sure they were, got there and got safely back. And she also, later in her career, worked on the space shuttle program and on plans for the mission to Mars. So she has her fingers in all of the NASA pots. Like, so cool. Crazy. I just love the weight I'm not going to be comfortable with this until Catherine runs the numbers. I know. I know. It's like, well, run it by this lady. Yeah. And she's like, okay. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. Yeah. So she worked, she worked there from 53 to 86 and she was involved in, you know, she got involved in STEM initiatives, like educating young people, inspiring them to science. And she, I think she still did that even after she retired. Um, and during this entire time, I'd like to note, like no one knew there were no articles written about her. There were no, there was nothing. She helped write the textbook on space, the NASA textbook on space, and she's still kind of an unknown. Um, so she, you know, was spending this time doing kind of PR or whatever. And then, you know, of course, NASA knew who she was and they decided to dedicate a building for her, the Catherine G. Johnson Computational Research Facility in Langley, Virginia. And that's where she spent most of her NASA career. And then, it, you know, the year before, like I said, she'd gotten the, the Medal of Freedom from President Obama, which must have been super cool for her, you know, to have grown up in West Virginia way no, before totally. civil rights, be awarded the, the medal at the White House with the first black president. Not, not too shabby. Yeah. So it was at this time when she was being recognized that NASA Administrator Charles Bolden, who was the first black man to head the agency on a permanent basis, um, he said, even though she never put herself above people, she never had a feeling of inferiority or superiority. He said, just like her dad taught her. Just like her dad taught her. The most important lesson that she, she says he taught her. Um, Charles Bolden said, the truth is, in fact, that Catherine is indeed better. She's one of the greatest minds ever to grace our agency and our country. And because of the trail she blazed, young Americans like my granddaughters can pursue their own dreams without a feeling of inferiority. So she That's did, really, she did really a lot. Cool. And, and it's interesting because I, in all of this research that we've been doing on different scientists, most of the time, it's just, you know, copy written by someone who's you know, pulled it from a biography or whatever. Occasionally you'll find an, a biography like the ones that were written by Marie Curie's daughter about her and stuff right. like that. But 
this was the first case really that all of the research was kind of video interviews like there's been this rush to interview katherine johnson over the past 10 years and she's done a lot of interviews you know with nasa or other like little news agencies about her experiences and it was so great to hear her say things in her own voice like with her own words and have it unquestionably have come from her because you know when you see something written down in a biography you're never sure what the angle is completely it's a game of telephone you're never especially we went back to galileo i mean good lord But she's, she's one of the only scientists this season that we've talked about who's still living. I mean, the other one is Jane Goodall, and there's tons of stuff on her. This is kind of the opposite, where mm-hmm. there's very little, but what's there is of such good quality, I felt. And it was, I think it's very important. I know there's been a huge push lately about diversity initiatives and the importance of diversity. I think people don't really understand why it is. And to see her as a woman describe her experience not only as a woman but as a black woman trying to get into the stem fields i mean it's like she chose the most difficult path for herself and it was amazing to hear exactly what she had to say in her own words about it and i think that it's very important to have those kinds of records because you know you just never know that it exists unless someone documents it i mean that's sad but we we would have never known about her if these interviews hadn't been recorded if nasa had never named a building after her like how many women are were in those sections and she never took individual credit for anything she always said it was a team effort so she's kind of the example that is being held up but it's useful to know that there is an example out there completely and i think it is it is disheartening when there are examples i mean I, I mentioned Res the Rocket Girls earlier. Mm-hmm. These were women at JPL that were doing these some of these same things. They were the computers, and they just kind of got forgotten and written out of histories. I mean, when they had, they were the women that computed the first American spacecraft that went into space, the Explorer One, which mm-hmm. was our answer to Sputnik. That was JPL that did that, and yeah, it was the whole team of women computers that that you know did all the math for it. And when they did launch it and they're in the control room trying to confirm that it really did get to space, was in orbit, all that, all that stuff, where, you know, where it was, mm-hmm. there was a woman there, you know, receiving the information, receiving the data, crunching the numbers. And so everyone was sitting there waiting, like, did we do it? Did yeah. it succeed? And they're all just seriously just waiting for her to, you know, say whether or not it did. And, and you know, eventually said, yep. Um, but when they had like the 50th anniversary, they didn't invite any of those, any of those women. <sighs> because they were like oh this truly and i don't believe i have no idea but i don't believe anyone did it on purpose to snub them they just didn't think about it people forget them then they get written out of that's the history. kind of the saddest part is that it doesn't even occur to you yeah. that this person contributed yeah so that's what is really disheartening is that it's people are like oh women in stem it's like no we've been here you just yeah. keep forgetting <laughs> God. I'm, right, I'm sitting right next to you carl hey, hey I'm, I'm right, right here i'm right here Um, We have lunch together every day. And especially, you know, women, when it comes to STEM fields, the one where women are the least represented is in math, physics, and computer science. So it's really hard hard to hear about how it, you know, it was the women that were doing this because they were the ones that were doing all the computing. They were the computers. Mm -hmm. When the the machines showed up, the machines, (laughs) all these Terminator, (laughs) when the, you know, actual electronic computers came on board, they were the ones that were using them and they were, they were programming them. They were writing code. And so, you know, women were 
totally well represented among computer programmers and computer scientists when computers first came out. But then we've been slowly just yeah. eating away at those numbers. And so now it's it's some, it's less than 20%. And this is of people that major it in college. Right. It's not even in the industry and people actually working in that field because it's been going down since the 80s. There and is... that's when she retired was in the 80s. Yeah. And that's when we started losing all this ground. And I I don't know exactly why, but it's Well, probably weird. because they started using, you know, electronic computers. I mean, it's a special cruelty to to push women out of computer science when the first computer programmer was Ada Lovelace. Right. And then the first and computers all these women were, were, were well, women but, who did and the then, space program. But when the, when the actual electronic computers were there, they were the first people coding them, too. So they were coding. Yeah. They, it was all, it was set. And then all of a sudden, we just lost everything. Yeah. In describing the role of women computers, Catherine had said they just wanted somebody to do the little stuff while they did the thinking. So I think that is the crux of it. It's not considered work unless it's like the big flashy stuff. Never mind that the big flashy stuff is not possible unless you do all of the legwork to get there. And if the legwork is incorrect, you know, I wonder who they, who they would have blamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a that's an interesting question, but. I'd like to think that holding up examples like her show what we've done in the past and what we could do again if we just stop being idiots about it. Well, and also, I really like that she questioned some of the assumptions where there, when she said, can I go to the engineering meeting? I'm crunching all your numbers. I would like to know more about what they're for, because what if one of their, what if their, one of their, um, not calculations, what if their equations mm-hmm. was wrong and she could have caught it because she knew what they were going to be doing with it. So, you know, saying, what well, can I come? And they were like, well, that's not usually what's done. And it was like, is and, that an, an answer? And they were checking those, they, they were checking all of their answers against her anyway. Like she said, when they, when the engineers went to a meeting and they were asked a specific questions about the numbers, they would say, oh, we have to check with Catherine. So, you know, just, just have her there. put her at the table. But yeah, so que- I, I don't know. I like the questioning those assumptions. Yeah. Why can't I do that? Is there actual, a, a real reason? Because just saying it's not done is, is not, is not good enough. So yeah question question these assumptions yeah so she's enjoying her retirement she likes to travel play bridge watch sports spend time with her family all that good stuff and uh yeah she turns 98 in august so happy birthday happy Happy early birthday birthday. um many happy returns yeah orbits that's awesome (laughs) many happy orbits many happy orbits around the sun (laughs) which you can calculate with great detail (laughs) just with your brain (laughs) And that ends this episode of Science Brunch, which is also the end of our first season of Science Brunch. Ten episodes. Ten episodes. Make sure you've listened to all of them. They're all wonderful. Yeah. I'm not biased in the slightest <laughs> when I tell you that. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're going on a road trip this summer, you know someone who's going on a road trip listen to the podcast yes indeed you do it's it's clean it's safe for kids they could learn something you can learn something we used the bleep button one time yeah but you know i guess i i've said crap i think a few times so it's fine the kids are gonna hear worse for sure but while we are regrouping for our second season while we're planning and seeing if we could find perhaps a home in terms of a podcast network or a sponsor 
What would be a really big help is if you would tell your friends about the show, because these episodes are, are still there. They're still available. So if they can go back and listen, if we can get some of our stats up, that will make it easier for us to find someone that will be a podcast supporter so that we can keep making really great episodes for you guys. And while we're planning next season and the wonderful scientists and science ideas and discoveries that we're going to be talking about. So if you tell two friends and they tell two friends... Then what we got here is a pyramid scheme. <laughs> then it's eventually the whole world will be listening. And then <laughs> it'll be really easy for us to do this more. <laughs> so just do that. So and in terms of uh, the start of the second season, if you subscribe in your preferred podcast uh, application of sorts, wherever you listen to, be sure to subscribe so that you find out about the next episode. Or go to our website, sciencebrunch.org, and sign up for our newsletter. And we'll keep you up to date about what's going on and when the next season is starting up and what you can expect and all your behind-the-scenes randomness. So do either of those two things, and we will see you in Season 2. September. Have a safe, fun, sciencey summer. Yeah, do that. And read Rise of the Rocket Girls. <laughs> <laughs>